Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Hello there. This is David Bernstein for the Counterweight Hold My Drink podcast. I'm delighted to be here for the first time, not with my partner in crime, Jennifer Richmond, who couldn't be with us today, but I am very delighted to have uh, Valerie Tarico. Um, Valerie is a therapist and a writer in Seattle. She's an author. Um, she wrote an extremely important article that, that I had come across, Why Your Woke Therapist May Be Doing You More Harm Than Good. Um, and I thought it was one of the most well-written, nuanced, thoughtful pieces I've read on the subject. And there, unfortunately, have been quite a number of articles coming from therapists and social workers and uh, others in recent months about how the field is changing in a way that may not be good for patients. Um, so, Valerie, welcome. Thanks. It's an honor to be on the show with you. So um, normally, uh, if I were Jennifer, I would start with this thing about what are you drinking? And uh, but I'm, you know, I'll leave that to her. I feel like it, it should. Do you have anything that you're drinking? I do. I, I mean, I've watched some of your past episodes, so I came prepared. Um, oh, beautiful. And I just have to say, being, uh, you know, kind of I live in Seattle in a in a in a multifamily house with uh, three millennials. So what I'm drinking, it should be no surprise, is homemade kombucha. Like what else? Wow. Wow. That's great. I have actually I'm a, a diet tonic water. So <laughs> um, I thought about giving myself a, a little shot of vodka or gin in it, but you know, I have a, I have another one of these later. Some, um, so not in the offing, but um, really good to talk to you. And um, I'm so, so you, you're, you're concerned that that ideology is sort of imposing itself in therapy. Tell me what your main concern is. Well, let me start by saying, I guess, to, to back up a second um, and provide a little more context for who I am. Um, I'm, as, I, as you said, I'm a psychologist and writer in Seattle. I have spent much of the last um, decade um, organizing progressive political donors to invest in um, you know, infrastructure like think tanks and youth civic engagement and voter file technology and stuff like that. So, so working on the left for a long time. And then my writing has largely been focused. I, I was, I'm a former evangelical. And so a lot of my writing has been on religious fundamentalisms of various kinds. And then secondarily of, on the role of women in society uh, and, and then kind of contraceptives, you know, kind of family planning, contraceptive technologies, abortion, et cetera. So, um, so that provides some context for, for my views on um, critical social justice and then the way that it is coming into the, the therapy context. I'm no longer a practicing therapist um, because I have been full-time working in these other activist, kind of what I see as more leveraged activist spaces and, um, and you know, kind of more hands-on change the world kind of stuff for the last uh, decade now, but, um, clearly coming from the left half of the political spectrum. So that's, so we're going to have to talk about, there's a lot there, including being a former evangelical. I'm going to want to learn a little bit more about that journey. Um, but, you know, so you've, you've spent a lot of time in uh, as a therapist and you wrote this 
a very compelling article about it. Let's start there and we'll go to some of these other areas as well, because like you, I've, I've actually been in progressive advocacy most of my career and find myself in some ways on the outs with my own political community now. So I'm sure we'll have a, we'll be able to compare notes there, but let's start with therapy and how that's changing. So what I wrote about in the article is four different aspects of the way that that wokeism can runs counter to what we know about about human well-being, psychological well-being in terms of healthy emotional functioning and relationship functioning. Um, so internal dynamics and interpersonal dynamics. And and I, you know I can just step through those four points and then we can come back and talk more in depth about whatever you'd like to. So one of those um, dimensions after my brain is so shot you know, now that I'm post 60 that I actually have to take notes on my own articles. Um, but mm -hmm. one, one of those point has to do with what I would call managing emotions or the relationship between some, between emotions and reason in which, and in that kind of particular dimension of healthy psychological functioning, cognitive behavioral therapies and other evidence-based therapies um, often work to intervene um, uh, on the side of teaching people to kind of step back from their emotions, not to assume that um, just because you feel something that it represents reality, that our emotions are one indicator of what might be real, but they are, they're shaped by our history, they're shaped by our ancestral history, they're shaped by human history. And so they can, um, they're, they're important, we need to kind of listen to them, but they also sometimes um, are, are either exaggerated or kind of altogether off base. Um, and what you see in woke social justice and the way that that's coming into the therapy office then is that emotions are treated as if they were reality, that if you feel something, then that means it's true. And, and then you kind of take that as a starting point and go from there. So a second area where I have some concerns about the intersection between, you know, woke social justice and and psychotherapy, I, I guess I should back up and say, you know, there's, there's no good term for the subculture uh, that I'm describing. I called it wokeism because I've also written about the quasi-religious dimensions of it. I think it, that, that, that um, John McWhorter makes a strong case there. In fact, I wrote about it before he did, <laughs> um, if I can self-brag a bit, um, sure. though, not, no, though not as beautifully and as extensively. Um, but, but uh, you know, you can, some people call it critical social justice. You know, clearly what we're, we're talking about is a, a kind of subculture that is derivative of um, critical race theory or critical kind of theory more broadly. Um, and that, and that then has gotten mixed in with social media and has taken on a bunch of social dynamics that kind of go far beyond what some of the original hypotheses about critical race theory or critical theory um, would have been. But anyway, so coming back to that, the second, coming back to where we were, the second kind of way in which I think this is harmful from a therapeutic standpoint is um, in terms of how it, it treats the tribe versus our kind of shared humanity or um, or the individual. So I, I had a I had a client once who kind of came in with something he had read that stuck with me, and it, it was a just a brief saying that said, "In some ways, I am like all other people. In some ways, I am like some other people, and in some ways, I am like no other person." Right. Mm. So if you think about those three things. Um, and you're trying to kind of create a, a centered, thriving life, you want to kind of take all of those into consideration. And the 
for most of human history, kind of identity was dominated by that middle part, by the tribe, by the ways that I'm like some other people, my group, my people. And then the enlightenment came along and really centered itself in our shared humanity. And honestly, many of our major religious traditions move in that direction um, as well. Some at their best, at their worst, they kind of center us back in tribalism. Um, and then there is the kind of, the other thing that came out of the enlightenment as a focus is the kind of fo the, the idea of our unique individuality being something that we should honor and elevate and create space for um, in our individual relationships and in society at large. So, so when I look at then that triad and where it intersects with psychotherapy, what I, I think that there's real risk in, you know, the idea of woke therapists who are kind of like evangelical Christians taught that they should always be on the make, that they're always supposed to be seeking con converse that there's only one right way to view the world that that coming into a psychotherapy relationship with that mindset with a client who's vulnerable and trusting um, means that you miss those other parts that can be profoundly important to individual empowerment um, so the third part or the third dimension that i wrote about in the article where i think that um, woke culture runs counter to what we know about psychological and relationship health is um, what I would call agency. Um, so the question of where is the locus of power? And as you know, um, critical social justice or woke wokeism um, is very much talks about power dynamics as being outside of the individual, as being kind of centered in society, in um, terms I might use as a psychologist, um, more wonky terms that talk about internal versus external locus of control. And wokeism is all about external locus of control. It's about what society is doing to you, not about the aspects of power that are centered within you as an individual and the ways that you can shape your life, work on healing, work on growth, attain goals, et cetera, you know, in spite of whatever may be going on in your social context, right? So it, it runs very counter to, you know, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. It runs counter to, um, to you know, a whole lot, again, of what goes on in our, or, or kind of some of the best teachings of the world's great religious traditions about what it means to kind of reflect inward, to kind of find a, a spiritual or moral core within yourself to establish a set of goals and then work on living towards those or leaning into those. Um, and then the fourth aspect that I, I of critical um, social justice theory that kind of goes head to head with what we know of from evidence-based therapies and kind of human development studies um, is uh, is has to do with kind of with relationships, right? So when you think about um, relationship dynamics in in um in in critical social justice, I, I might I might draw an analogy to marital therapy, right? So when you it, people go into marital therapy and they're working on trying to find common ground, they're trying to take a bridging rather than breaking approach to their relationship dynamics recognizing that people are imperfect, recognizing that we all have our baggage and that we come in with a history, but that we are committed to mutuality, to understanding, to being in community and in relationship with each other. And then there's another approach to relationships, right? Which is that when you go to divorce court and it's a breaking approach, right? So at that point, um, not always, 
but at its worst, it's all about how do I catch the other person out? How do I kind of beat them? Where can I find a hole in their arguments? How can I get as much as I can? It's zero sum, you know, et cetera. And, and so, so uh, once again, that is a, a mentality when a person moves into that mentality and starts seeing the relationships around them through that lens that runs counter to what we know about human flourishing, both as individuals and as families. Right, right. Yeah, so wokeism is not really very relational, is it? It um, runs counter sort of a, to a relational approach to the to the people around you. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating and, and, and that's, it's very well said. Um, do you have a sense of how much, how many fellow therapists agree with you or disagree with you? Do, you? do you hear a lot about this in your own field? Or do you think it's something that is sort of taking your field um, over and that most people are sort of willing to go around uh, along with it and, and dispense with some age old ideas about how to do therapy well? Uh, you know, I can't, I don't have any statistics or numbers. What I can say is there are, um, I worry about it honestly being a kind of generational transition because I, I feel like people in my generation were were very grounded in the idea that you don't bring your stuff into the therapy room, right? That that the that what you do is you it's it, the whole process is about pro providing a mirror to the person and supporting their own healing or or, or growth objectives. So that there are actually ethical principles that spe spell that out um, for master's level counselors and for psychologists. And yet, if you go into training programs now, psychology graduate programs, they are very much infused with critical theory, with um, kind of third wave anti-racism and the idea that that kind of, and, and so what, what, what you hear reported out of some of those programs is that there's not even room for conversation within the training programs that might um, run counter to some of those orthodoxies. There's a group that is was founded by a psychologist in London called Critical Therapy Antidote, and she's created kind of a backroom uh, social network for people in various countries um, you know, kind of folks kind of come in and sometimes talk um, about their experience in South Africa and Canada and the United States and other European countries um, about kind of the challenges around either being a student in one of these training programs or kind of ways in which they see this coming in and starting to alter professional standards. So like if you go to, uh, I, I would expect somebody going to a psychotherapist now uh, that, that there, there's there, it would not be hard to find someone who feels like they need to kind of cr maintain their own boundaries and respect, you know, kind of what your objectives are and not feel like they have to, you have to leave therapy as a convert. Um, but I also wouldn't assume that. So if, if like, mm. a, 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 you know, if somebody in my family were needing therapy at this point, I would coach them on how to ask a set of questions that would help them to determine what the therapist's mindset and approach is. Mm. So you speak about the external versus the internal locus of control. This is not an argument that there aren't external factors that might provide imp impediments to people, right? You're not saying that there aren't 
any sources of of bias or discrimination or even oppression that might that people might face. You're just saying it's not a productive way to do therapy. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's right. So, of course, there's bigotry that exists in our society. I think um, we humans are hardwired for tribalism in a bunch of ways and that we respond to superficial characteristics and that that um, regardless of our race, that that those kind of instincts and in instinctive bigotries are something that we we need to work to challenge both during childhood and and then as we you know as, and into adulthood. Um, do I think there are ways in which um, you know kind of racism has gotten just incorporated into legal systems or patterns um, in our society that still need to be addressed, of course. I think sometimes we confuse that with the cascading intergenerational effects of historic racism. And so sometimes we assume that, that the problem is current systemic racism, when in fact what the problem is, is that we're still dealing with, with the horrific toxic effects of, of, of kind of years and years of you know, black people or people, you know, Mexican people or whoever kind of being subject to discrimination. So, so, so those things seem incontrovertible to me. Um, and at the same time, that I, I personally think that a, a, a critical approach to social justice is, is the, is the wrong way. I think that it's divisive. I think that um, kind of, centering people in racial essentialism and gender essentialism um, ultimately has some real potential to backfire. I think that it is it is kind of contributing um, white identity um, essentialism on the right part of the spectrum as well. Um, but that's, I guess, a separate question from the one you asked, which is kind of first and foremost, I guess, I wrote this article about because I feel like people need to be conscious of what's going on in the field of psychotherapy. You actually mentioned at one point Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, and it's actually um, about finding agency, even for somebody who was facing the most extreme conditions in the Holocaust. In other words, he, he believed that that the people who are most likely to survive the Holocaust were people who maintained some internal locus of control despite being under the most extreme hardships that one can imagine facing a human being. And that's what got them through, by and large, they could have been killed because someone shot them or forced them into gas chambers or whatever. But, but even under those extreme conditions, having that mentality helped you survive. And, and so, so we can, so does, to, to say that that's a healthy way of going through life doesn't mean that one doesn't face impediments based on race, right. gender, or anything else, right? Um, so, um, on, I, yeah, go ahead. On the other hand, um, so that is absolutely true. And thank you for making that point. On the other hand, if, if we get, if we get it wrong, if what we're seeing is something that is external to us when, and that we are helpless when in fact we're not helpless, um, then that, that doesn't contribute to human flourishing, right? So again, not denying that there are challenges around ongoing bigotries, around um, residual systemic racism, around the cascading intergenerational effects of, of historic racism and sexism, etc. But, but it, it is very much a matter of where we put our locus of focus on problem solving or on um, 
you know, you know, cri critical theory approaches to, to some degree are really about, again, this is why where I come to back to my evangelical background, it's kind of about righteousness and about kind of the, the idea that people need to be kind of pummeled into confessing that they are sinners kind of irredeemably lost, right? And, 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 and then um, creating, a, a kind of building social dynamics around that. Interesting question about whether what we're dealing with is a religion. I know you and John McWhorter think it is. I, I pose this question to um, an evangelical Christian and an Orthodox rabbi, both of whom are ardent critics of wokeism. Who um, and the evangelical Christian Neil Shenvey argued that it's it's less of a religion and more of a meta narrative. Uh, now he may argue that because he doesn't want it to be characterized as a religion, which it seems like it would be a pejorative in a way, and he doesn't view religion in that way. But but he, he would argue that it's missing certain key components that one usually associates with religion, a mystical tradition and the like. And um, so anyway, it's an interesting academic question, is, but, but it certainly has some things in common with uh, religious dogma as well. So I, I guess I, I feel like I want to go there a little bit. You uh, are a former evangelical. Um, how, tell me a little bit about your life story, about becoming or being an evangelical, and then breaking from your evangelical roots. So I was raised in a, a, a Christian fundamentalist family, um, Dallas seminary tradition, if that means anything to you. Um, you know, accepted Jesus as my personal savior probably when I was five and then again when I was seven and then again when I was nine, you know, because hell was a scary place. So I grew up in that. I went to Wheaton College of Billy Graham fame, the one in, in Illinois of my own choice and found myself um, wrestling with the moral and rational contradictions in my worldview and ultimately found them untenable, right? So, um, you know, by the time I had come out to, I came to Seattle, and to do a psychology internship out here at Children's Hospital. And I was, you know, kind of listening to people try to rationalize the suffering unto death of young children, you know, in the cancer ward um, within the context of their belief in an omnipotent, omnibenevolent interventionist deity. It just started sounding like so many rationalizations. And I realized that I'd been holding together my version of God with, you know, duct tape and bailing wire for a long, a long time. Mm. Um, so, so yes, in my mind, obviously I'm going to be, and that I've done a lot of writing about that. Um, I, I wrote a book called Trusting Doubt uh, um, that offers is a critique of kind of that kind of evangelical fundamentalist Christianity. And, and so I'm going to be more tuned into the negative dimensions of relate of religion, right. Than than the positive dimensions. And, and, you know, you can think about religion as a, um, a very complex interrelated set of cultural technologies. And absolutely um, some of those are not gonna be present in wokeism. Um, but like, you know, if you read John McWhorter's book or if you, you know, I, I wrote a 2019 article titled The Righteous and the Woke, why social justice warriors and evangelicals trigger me in the same way. Um, and I lay out some of those similarities um, because the similarities are pretty powerful. And I don't think it's an accident that as you see the decline of, of, of Christianity in our society, that there is this concurrent rise in what I might call secular political kind of, kind of religion. Mm. So people looking to find 
community looking to find a sense of righteousness, looking to find a sense of, um, you know, how do I make meaning out of my life? Um, uh, the, how, how do I kind of find a sense of superiority, honestly? Um, on both the left and the right, we see those things emerging. I have secret insider knowledge. I've got a, a, a vocabulary to prove it. I've got a set of, of kind of insular information sources that I and my um, fellow adherents can all agree on. Yeah. You know, one thing that strikes me is, uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the people who are critiquing wokeness like Sam Harris and Peter Bogosian and others, these were the new atheist crowd. And now uh, some of those new atheists sort of joined the ranks of the woke and others didn't. And there's actually quite an interesting ideological uh, break there. But I've, I've heard some of the people like, I don't think Sam Harris himself has, but some of the others say that, you know, they're starting to think a little differently about religion than they did before because they see, because at least Christianity and let's say Judaism were calibrated for sort of Western life. They'd been, they'd been living side by side with, um, with sort of Western democratic culture for a long time and, and over time became sort of reached a, a, a detente with it in a way that allowed the two to coexist. But yet these newer secular religions that you're talking about, and wokeism is certainly one of them, um, have not gone through that process and and in a way make claims that are, you could argue, are directly in contradiction to Western democratic traditions. Is that is that your your view as well? Yeah. So you know, modern Christianity has been shaped by by was shaped by the Enlightenment, and then kind of you know centuries of of of, of religious evolution since then, and 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 of necessity, kind of came to internalize some of those Enlightenment values around rationality. You know, like even evangelicalism. You look at some of the um, eschatological teachings, and there are they are sort of attempts at a pseudoscientific analytic analysis of um, or application of of these old theologies um, in a way that fits the the new world, if you will. Um, and and what we're seeing now is these emergent religions, you know, it's kind of, you know, it are largely unfettered, whether they're secular, whether it's kind of new age spirituality, you know, whether it's some of the um, Scientology and other kinds of emerging cults, they, 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 they aren't kind of bound to rationality um, in the same way they aren't bound to being moderated or tempered um, by, um, by tradition. In fact, part of what they, they revel in is in casting that aside. So what you see in wokeism coming back again, like when it is often a repudiation of the scientific method, a repudiation of individuality, of um, even kind of the, the tools of, of representative democracy, et cetera. And, and you know, that again creates a challenge in, in um, the therapeutic process context because I'm sitting here talking about, well, we have these evidence-based therapies that we've been honing and refining over the course of now more than a generation that, and we, and we're talking about kind of um, rigorous, kind of rigorous inquiry and, um, you know, comparison groups and, and things like that. And, and so somebody who's very immersed in, um, in, you know, critical social justice or, you know, kind of wokeism might say, well, yes, so what that, 
so what if our worldview runs counter to those things? We don't trust those methods of inquiry anyways. Those are, um, you know, white male ways of knowing, or those are Eurocentric ways of knowing, or they simply kind of reinforce the status quo. So you left the evangelical church. I'm sure maybe you'll tell us a little bit about this. You 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 would probably ha would have had to face some social consequences in that or family consequences. And, and now you're a progressive who is critiquing maybe the primary source of progressive ideology these days. I mean, uh, have, are you going through a, a, a second breakup? I mean, tell, tell us a little about, well, first of all, tell us about your first one and then tell us if you're going through a second one. So um, <laughs> I do think they're related. So, I, you know, by the time I completely um, stopped calling myself a Christian, I was already centered in a highly educated, highly secular community here in Seattle. And so that was a fairly benign transition for me in contrast to other people. You know, you can go to xchristian.net and read testimonials of people who were, who were rejected by their families who kind of went you know, had no community, but their church community when they broke, broke off with Christianity and basically had to start from scratch, sometimes without an education because they'd been part of a sect that didn't value education. So I had it really particularly easy in that regard. Not that it was painless. There are just simply some conversations my family and I choose not to have together. Um, I, I have two evangelical siblings and two who are now somewhere on the agnostic, uh, agnostic atheist spectrum. Um, and, 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 and so, you know, it can be a spicy stew if we all get together. <laughs> um, but that said, then when I think about this, um, kind of the, the ways that I am kind of questioning some now progressive orthodoxies in the community around me, I, I feel like one way that that's related is that I feel like I've I've done that groupthink thing, right? I've been in a context where you're only you're you're only allowed to ask questions up to a certain point. I've I've been in uh, I've lived in communities where you kind of if you have opinions that seem to kind of be the thing that you've come to based on your own struggle um, and your own deep moral values that you have to keep those ideas to yourself. And I'm just not going to do it again. I also have the luxury that I think a lot of people don't have, which is I do have a platform. I've been writing for online news and opinion sites for a decade. All of my articles are archived at ValerieTorico.com and available there. But I was writing for places like Salon and Truthout and the Huffington Post and Raw Story. And, and so I had an audience and I felt, but I was doing all of that for free <laughs> because I can afford to right now. And so I didn't have a whole lot to lose in contrast to other people who might be, have been as deeply engaged as progressive activists, but who needed to earn a living or had some kind of institutional reputation that they felt a responsibility to protect, right? Where they were worried about cutting off relationships with donors or supporters or, or kind of, or undermining their own ability to accomplish something important like climate change work or voter, you know, kind of uh, um, democracy reform or whatever it might be. Mm. Yeah. Ha did have you had to make ex friends in this process or have your have your friends who continue to be progressive stayed with you? 
Um, most of my, my friends have stayed with me. I've definitely been called a Karen on Facebook. I've definitely had people, you know, unfriend me on social platforms. I think there are people in our community who are wary of me. And I did break some relationships recently when um, our amazing director of our local Planned Parenthood affiliate, who has um, just been a rock star. She's one of the reasons, Chris Charbonneau, she's one of the reasons that Planned Parenthood nationally has their own drug company so that they can control pricing. She's one of the reasons they have a telemedicine service. She's one of the reasons that they have a model for, um, for peer counseling among teenagers that has gotten replicated across the country. And she has probably done more in the Northwest region to ensure that poor and minority women have access to contraception, you know, more than anyone. And she was recently lost her job abruptly, defenestrated because a donor used the N-word during a meeting with, with Chris and someone else, said that women in Texas are like the new N-word. And then Chris described that conversation behind closed doors to another staff member, which ultimately resulted in her losing her job. And um, at, at a time when here we are trying to kind of ramp up services to provide for women from Idaho and Montana who are going to lose their abortion access, right? Mm -hmm. So I kind of lost my <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this program, but I lost Please. it um, yeah. because lost that shit. is just, I lost my shit. You know, it's just like that is a perfect example of form over function of righteous purity over actually caring about what it takes to roll up your sleeves and, and create genuine equality on the ground. Um, so, so yeah. yeah, I have, I have broken some, I've broken some relationships recently and I'm, I'm kind of ready to be there. Right. So I feel your pain um, here. I just had a conversation about an hour before this one with a couple academics um, who I probably agreed with on, let's say, 80 or 90 percent of the policy issues. If you went down the line from choice to criminal justice reform to immigrant rights and so forth, we're probably on the same page. And yet the fact that I in their view, make common cause with the people who say there's a problem with the teaching of critical race ideologies in schools, even though I'm not trying to ban it from the state. Uh, I, I, that's not our my stance, not my organization's stance. I'm still critical of it being taught in a monolithic way. I think that there should the kids should listen to read both Ibrahim X. Kendi and John McWhorter, right? They shouldn't just hear Kendi. And, and I think that would give them a, allow them to have more critical conversations um, than they're able to have today. And, and yet they couldn't even have a conversation. They wanted to define me off the reservation. They wanted to make me so that I'm not of the left, even though that's where I've always positioned myself or thought of myself. And I'm wondering how you deal with it. Like, do you now say to yourself, well, if you don't want me on the left, I'm not on the left, but I'll still support whatever issues I do. Or are you, or are you saying I am on the left and I'm going to try to reclaim my place in the left? Where, where do you come down on that? Well, uh, so. Uh, you know, every once in a while, I, I say to my daughters, I can't stand it. I think I'm becoming conservative. And they laugh at me because they know my values. You know, when we sit down at the end of the year to write our checks, my husband and I, the, the biggest checks that we're writing go to um, family planning access, climate change, Van Jones, who's working, you know, in his work on prison reform and yeah. kind of and, and helping to ensure that that 
um, people in inner cities are not left out of the tech transition or the green collar jobs transition. Stacey Abrams, you know, and her work um, to ensure that people voting aren't rights. being voting rights. Exactly. So, so at a, at a tangible, practical level, it's not like I fit anywhere on the right. And I frankly think that the right has gone off a cliff. I just am frustrated that it seems to be that um, some folks on the left are wanting to take us off the other side of the catwalk, right? So, so I, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I, I just, I do think like, you know, in 2018, I wrote an article um, about political narrative and title, you know, kind of why some progressives are tearing each other apart, in which I contrasted traditional social liberal democracy with um, kind of critical, critical theory based identity kind of identitarian kind of politics. And like, I, you know, I, I continue to think that the first two of those is just simply a better approach to accomplishing in the long run what we want to accomplish on the left. You know, I mean, for one thing, just at a practical level, if we are saying to young white men, there's no place for you in our aspirational future, you just need to take a, you know, kind of a, a, a kind of bend over at the back of the line because people who look like you have had it way too good for too long. Um, should we really, you know, Van Jones has said this, should we really be surprised then that they kind of start looking to white supremacy groups where they are welcomed with a sense of kind of respect and dignity and told that that they actually matter and their their anxieties, their economic struggles, um, you know, that their deaths of despair matter? Right. We're, the worst we're, thing you could tell, the worst thing you could tell a white person who lived in a like a former manufacturing town with an opioid addiction is that they have privilege, you know, um, and and to argue that somehow that um, they're 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 complicit in a white supremacy order is not going to make friends. It's not going to make allies in any kind of political struggle. It's going to alienate people, and it's going to probably drive them to the right or extreme right. And I I, I guess that you know, that that sort of practical message is being lost on people. They just they they just want to see it as well, that's just because they're being manipulated by the right. They don't want to take any responsibility in their own actions and rhetoric that might actually lead to that result. Yeah. So there's both a pragmatic issue here, like it's not going to win elections. Um, there's also a moral moral issue here when it comes to kind of grounding ourselves in our shared humanity and being able to recognize the suffering of people, regardless of their skin color, regardless of what genitalia they have, you know, re, re, you know and regardless of kind of what happened to people who look like them, you know, whether we're talking about the descendants of slaves or we're talking about the descendants of coal miners, we're talking about the descendants of oligarchs, right? That that to treat people as if they were simply proxies for other people who, who happen to look like them, who kind of are identified therefore as part of their tribe is, is it's profoundly in my mind, immoral. It, it violates what I think of as the very best of our spiritual traditions, including Christianity, including the kind of Christianity that I came out of, you know, and which, you know, and when you look at kind of what is universal in those religious traditions, it's typically some form of the golden rule. It's about being able to recognize in ourselves and in, you know, sometimes Justin, okay, the males of our own tribe, um, they should get treated as if kind of they, you know, kind of by according to the gold rule. If you go on the other end of the spectrum to Jainism, it is about all sentient beings. But I think that is kind of the convergent point in, in 
convergence point in humanity in humanity's moral code and um and a lot of what we're doing in the name of political expedience or in the name of kind of inverting the hierarchies of oppression really um negates that mm. yeah i i had a conversation with a very high level jewish rabbinical figure rabbi who's a sophisticated person and it was interesting we were talking about the liberalism and he's somebody who might be mod moderately sympathetic to what i'm arguing but thinks that there still are power structures and believes that the critique of liberalism is legitimate that it's preserving these power structures and i tried to understand what do you think will replace liberalism I, I I don't understand what you think the the replacement idea is, uh, as Wesley Yang calls the successor ideology. Like, what what do you think is going to succeed it? Um, when you say that people are no longer um, that that liberalism, the idea that we can have a free expression of ideas, is the fundamental operating system of society. If that's no longer the case, are who's going to decide what other people get to say and don't, don't say? And who has power and who doesn't have power? I just don't understand how there's any replacement to liberalism that would allow for a thriving democratic society. And I'm not sure. I'm sometimes not sure that these folks, at least the mo I think the more radical among them, want complete upheaval. But I'm not sure that the more moderate among them even have a theory for what society would be like if you actually scrap liberalism. Yeah, yeah. It's a sense of. <sighs> instead of kind of saying, what's the solution? It's a focus on the problem and it's a focus on atonement, right? So that I think, um, was it Eric, Eric Smith that you interviewed back in the summer who kind of, you know, was kind of there, there was a conversation about, are we right. actually looking to kind of provide some kind of, you know, self-flagellation gratification for certain kinds of white folks at the expense of black people who, who really need us to instead be focused on solutions, on rolling up our sleeves, on figuring out better, better, you know, kind of better prison systems, um, getting rid of the war on drugs, you know, you know um, figuring out how do we teach in a better way for kids who would, might be struggling with literacy, uh, you know, how, how do we um, ensure that every child comes into the world under the best possible circumstances available to their family, right, by allowing women to, um, to delay and limit their pregnancies, um, my big thing, right, so, so, you know, you ask, the, are, are, are we actually doing the things that help people to attain dignity and equality, or are we just, to what, to what extent are we um, engaged in a, an elitist self-gratifying form of navel-gazing, <laughs> which, which ends up harming people, you know, who need practical right, help, help, including right. people in therapy, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good way to come full circle. You know, it strikes me, though, one other thing I want to say before we sort of wrap it up is that um, that that this language is also sort of being this woke ideology is also being grafted on traditional religious traditions as well. I mean, I faced a lot of the flack that I've gotten from from progressive rabbis who who latch on to some of the religious elements, some of the atonement elements and bring it into Judaism as if it's, as if it's always been there, as if it was written into the Torah or itself. Um, and, and I think the same, by the way, is happening in, in segments of evangelical Christianity. Um, and, and so while 
on the one hand, it might be because religious tradition is receding that we're seeing these new religions, secular religions come into being. But it also may be that some aspects of those religious traditions actually combine with woke ideology and in, in sort of a in, a in a new theology. Have you thought about that at all? Do you have any sense of that? Well, even more so than than Judaism, Christianity is a highly mutating form of of religion, right? That's that that's kind of you know much more its survival mechanism, and it's the reason that there are literally tens of thousands of different denominations within Christianity. So it it, it shouldn't be surprising that that is happening. But I, but I see it as kind of a almost a reciprocal circular influence, right? So when you look at the um the kind of the woke focus on original sin, essentially, right? That this inborn sin of being born with a specific race and or out of a specific kind of like historic tradition and universal sin that like, there's no way to get away from it, right? That 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 when you look at this, the fatalism of that um, and the denial of progress, that progress is even possible here on this earth, right? It's so weird to have progressives denying that we've made any progress, right? In other words, what, what's the point. But I, I do think a bunch of that actually comes out of American forms of Christianity. Calvinism in a way. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, it's a kind of a fatalistic tradition in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Probably wouldn't have come turned the way it did if not for that. I mean, even some of this sort of, it's like a gospel in a way, uh, you know, that you're seeing the light. Um, and I, I think it, it does emerge out of a Christian vernacular. Um, so this has been, uh, it's been great. I, I think, I, I'm sure I'm going to have more questions about how this intersects with therapy and your concerns. And maybe I should, we should have spent more time there. Maybe we'll have you back on. Um, also, maybe in conversation with another therapist who shares some of your concerns and see what the back and forth produces. I think that would, um, that would also be fascinating. But um, I, I really appreciate your insights and your writing. And um, I'd like to stay in close touch. Thank you. I, you know, so we didn't talk a whole lot about the very concrete examples that I gave in terms of the contrast between woke thinking and um, the kinds of approaches to life and thinking that you get out of a uh, evidence-based therapies. But if people go to my website, ValerieTarico.com and scan down a a couple notches, they can find that article. And there's some very concrete examples there in those four areas of functioning that I talked about in terms of agency, emotional regulation, um, interpersonal relationships and conflict, right? So, so people should feel free to do that because uh, I didn't do a particularly good job of representing that information here in our conversation. And I'd be, I'd be more than happy to come back again to, to talk about, uh, about these issues with you and with another therapist. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say Hold My Drink and the conversation gets real.